says record. I put it here in general direction. So, so it's my great pleasure to welcome Anna Erickson here. Anna is a senior lecturer in criminology at Monash. So I am Anna's virtual colleague. Um, and Anna is also visiting us here at the centre for this term. And most of us will be familiar with Anna's work uh, with John Pratt on Nordic exceptionalism. And today we are going to be hearing <coughs> from Anna's current research project where she's just finished the field work, um, where she's going back to look at some of the concepts and issues that they found, I believe, in the first study from a slightly different angle. So I'll hand it over to Anna. And oh, I just want to say we have the room for 90 minutes. In a typical Mary Bosworth fashion, I actually have to leave by about 10 past 4 to pick up the children. So I think Anna is trying to fit this all into about an hour with half an hour talking and half an hour questions. But if everyone's yeah. happily chatting, I'll just you know, sit quietly leave and you can all keep going. Thanks. Thanks. I aim for half an hour. Obviously, it's going to be longer, but you know, that's how it works. Hopefully, it's interesting enough. So we'll see. Um, so uh, thank you all for coming. Um, hopefully, uh, you'll have something to, to discuss afterwards that will be hugely useful for me, if nothing else. So the study I'll talk about today um, is in many ways an extension of, of the work I did with John Pratt on non-exceptionalism and anglophone excess uh, in relation to opinion policy and practice and, and history. But it also goes substantially uh, beyond that by narrowing the lens from this macro view that we used uh, around the sociology of prisons to focus in much more detail on what happens behind the prison walls. Um, it also places at its focus the interaction between prisons and society in which they exist. So events, how events outside the walls impact on practice inside them and vice versa. Uh, much of the ethnography and qualitative research that takes place inside prisons tends to include either staff or prisoners. I have an outline, sorry, I'll show that. No, this is what I'm doing. Um, but uh, I'm interested not only in how the groups construct themselves individually, but also how they construct each other and the interaction that takes place between these two groups uh, in, in total institutions. So both staff and prisoners were interviewed in all the prisons uh, that I visited. But then I also widened the lens to try to discern what role the outside the walls dynamic have on the practice on the inside. Uh, those outside the walls variables, if we can call them that, um, include uh, current political context, media reporting, legal and policy context, as well as the role of the elusive public opinion. So the focus is both on variables inside and outside the prison walls and how they interact in different environments. And just to complicate it a bit further, environments in this context includes both different prison designs and security levels, so high through to open prisons, as well as the different cultural, political, historical and social contexts in which these prisons exist. To, to simplify the aims of this rather large uh, three-year project uh, as much as possible, um, I was basically interested in what makes prisons better or worse. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the easy explanation. Or if we frame it around three questions, I'm interested firstly in what creates a specific prison culture, Secondly, how can that culture be, or how is that culture maintained? And thirdly, how can that culture be changed? And for this purpose, a comparative study was deemed most appropriate. So my previous work with John Pratt included six countries uh, and a penal history spanning about 200 plus years. 
uh, for this study, which I'm doing on my own, uh, and that involves semi-structured interviews with staff and prisoners, six countries would be completely impossible uh, to do. Um, so I chose two. Uh, that kind of represents the, the, the opposite of, of the exceptionalism excess spectrum as, as we used to do in that particular book. So the first country is um, Australia, proper pronunciation. Mm -hmm. uh, for the simple reason that I live and work there, yeah? Uh, so it helps with access, obviously, and, and knowledge about current events, and you know, self-explanatory, really. The second country was Sweden, um, not only because that's where I'm originally from, um, so the accent is all over the place, but, uh, but because Sweden finds itself very much at the crossroads when it comes to penal policy and practice, moving away from a very strong focus on the, the social democratic welfare state approach to a more neoliberal one, and I, I find that that shift is really quite interesting. However... As, as these things work, after much negotiation with the Swedish uh, prison authorities, uh, I was denied access uh, on the grounds that my methodology of, of qualitative uh, interviewing was not deemed scientific enough and, and not of, of, of value uh, for, for their now evidence-based practice, which is very much quantitative. And, and, you know, they said, if you have a questionnaire, a la Liebling, you will come back. Uh, and I said, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Um, Things that happens in field work, you know. So, luckily, uh, my Norwegian colleagues, uh, some who work at the Prison Officer Academy, uh, that also is a very a great research unit, um, they, they were very enthusiastic about the project and the methodology and, and the questions that I was trying to, to, to ask and answer. Uh, so, they helped me negotiate access uh, across the prisons that I needed and the paperwork and, and so on and so forth. They were absolutely fantastic. So, without them, this would probably this would not have been a comparative project so much as an Australian study. Um, in, in Australia, I chose two uh, different states, uh, Victoria and Queensland. Uh, this was for two reasons. Firstly, that each state and territory in Australia has their own prison system, different laws and regulations, and also different cultures. And this is where the insider perspective comes into a point. Uh, I think for an outsider, someone who's just come to Australia to visit, uh, and now I am generalising, um, you must like you most likely experience an Australian culture that's, that's pretty broad and, and, and cohesive, uh, and maybe not pick up so much on the nuanced differences between the states and territories. Once you're in there and, and you live there, there are big differences, and, and the people themselves, uh, people who live in Victoria, uh, would never see themselves as a Queenslander. Yeah, that's like comparing Scotland with with South London. That's you know, it's a big difference. So. And also for some of the variables in terms of uh, the prisons are fairly similar in comparison to Norway, obviously, but things do change, including legislation, um, but also practices on the inside. And, and that kind of nuance helps me find some of those interesting things and more about that later. The, the second reason for including two states, uh, apart from numbers, uh, but not so much, but mainly for confidentiality and access. So the corrective services in Australia are highly politicised um, and there's a strong suspicion towards researchers, particularly when it comes to prison staff. And I negotiated with the corrections in Victoria for about a year and had um, ethics going back and forward to Department of Justice. And so I added Queensland. Um, so when I publish, uh, I can talk about high security in Australia or low security in Australia without mentioning the names of prisons uh, or even states necessarily. And that certainly helped uh, both to get access and both for staff to be much more forthcoming than they would have been otherwise. And that was something they asked about. Uh, they were very concerned about confidentiality. 
The problem, though, like the decision to focus on differences between the two states, which is an important analytical tool, but then you kind of have to gloss over some of that when, when you write up the results for reasons of confidentiality. And it's, it's, uh, it raises its own particular challenges that I'm currently working through. But, you know, one challenge uh, at the time. So, all in all, I conducted 130 interviews in Australia, uh, which included seven prisons uh, at all security levels and another 110 interviews uh, at seven prisons in Norway, also at all security levels. 50% of the interviews are with staff, uh, the majority of them custodial, but also supervisors, education and programme staff, administration and psychologists. The other half was with prisoners. As part of the methodology, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about the, the theory here uh, shortly, but I never asked prisoners uh, what they were sentenced for. That was simply not a question. A lot of them told me anyway for a range of reasons, but I'd never asked. Uh, my request was for people who had spent a short time in that particular prison and people who had spent um, a long time in that prison and in other prisons. Uh, a lot of them are circulated through, obviously. And the same request was made in relation to staff. So new staff and people have been working for, some of them for 30 years in the system, and to get, get the range of, of data. Um, I was not allowed to bring in a tape recorder uh, wow, in Australia. Sorry, there was a sun. This is a risk, I'm telling you. Um, so I took extensive notes during all interviews there. Um, then I, you know, tap them up as soon as possible afterwards, as, as the convention is. Um, in Norway, I was allowed to tape record. Initially, I thought I may not do that, just to keep the methodology as similar as absolutely possible. Uh, it's okay, I feel like in the spotlight, you know. <laughs> um, but time constraints during the first batch of fieldwork in particular, I did five prisons in about two and a half weeks. Uh, I don't recommend it. Uh, and it was up to ten interviews per day. Um, and an hour each. Um, again, I don't recommend it, you know. <laughs> I've been sleeping a lot the last two weeks. Um, but I was very happy to be able to tape record that, yeah. The, but then I shifted, this was in November last year, then I went straight back to Australia and started interviewing in January over there without tape recording, so you take notes. Uh, so I'm still typing those interviews up, that's what I'm currently doing. Uh, I did the last batch of interviews in August, seven weeks ago, in Norway, the last 40 interviews at two high security prisons there. So, you know, a minor disclaimer, because uh, I'm still in the process of transcribing all the Norwegian interviews. A lot of the quotes today will be from Australia, um, but because uh, I did all the interviews myself, apart from 14 interviews in Norway where my colleague Birit helped me, uh, I have all the interviews in my head, so you can just please ask anything, it's, it's all in there, and I'm happy to, to elaborate. Okay, uh, methodology. So, theoretical framework. It's going to be much shorter, people. Um, the framework around this study took its inspiration from Sigmund Bauman's uh, work on modernity and the Holocaust. Uh, this work is pretty controversial, and there are many who don't agree with his interpretation and explanation of events. But it was his writing around the social production of immorality and the concepts or the concept of responsibility towards the other that I find particularly compelling and in many ways applicable to total institutions in our modern times. To simplify this as much as possible, which is like a paragraph, uh, the concept, at least in the way I'm using it, um, argues that when we feel a social and cultural closeness to uh, an individual or to a group of people, we tend to have a sense of responsibility towards them. 
and act towards them in a respectful and humane manner. Yeah, not particularly strange. When that distance then becomes larger or too large, when the proximity that in, in essence encourages moral behaviour, uh, when that has become eroded, then we are more likely to feel indifferent towards the plight of the other. The result could be things like school bullying or, or not giving money to charity. Yeah, indifference doesn't do much apart from just not caring. Use a different expression there. Um, but when the erosion of proximity is coupled with techniques that dehumanise, that puts the other in a position of being qualitatively different, uh, or indeed not seen as human at all, that's when violence can be inflicted with little more restraint, uh, which can range from assault and murder to, to genocide. In a prison, as in any other total institution, I would argue, there is an automatic difference, a distance between us and them, and, and it's obvious between staff and prisoners. Yeah? It's obviously much more nuanced than that, but that's the, the, the pre-existing distance. The question is then, how can we prevent that distance from becoming too large, prevent that the two groups exist in different moral universes, if you will, where the humanity or the others become eroded to the point where abuse becomes a daily unquestioned routine. This approach provided a framework for thinking about the micro and macro processes that drive, perpetuate or indeed counteract the identification, exclusion and punishment of certain individuals and groups in our societies. The approach allowed me to identify practical variables within the different prison environments that can be used to argue for real change behind the walls, as well as lending a framework for normative theory production. Moving on. So, for the key variables that I'll discuss today, uh, I'll just pick two sites, if you will, of, of uh, analysis, because the data set is, is massive, and I was just trying to give you a flavour of how I'm trying to work through this. So, the two variables, the first is uh, informal interactions, and the second is training education of prison staff. And it's important to note that these are multifaceted, so they can be indicators of pre-existing distance, driven by outside-the-walls variables or the specific prison culture variables, as well as drivers of further erosional proximity between individuals and groups within the prison. And finally, the same variables can be drivers for reduced distance for the responsabilisation or social relationships that can result in increased trust, decreased hostility and violence between groups and individuals, so a more humane, less harmful prison environment. So each variable is a site of several opposing and competing forces. Moreover, and just to complicate it a little bit more, key variables interact. For example, the effects of staff wearing uniform differ between prison regimes um, in Australia, but also between countries, depending on all the, uh, what the other variables are doing. So I'll try to entangle some of these kind of interactions and their meaning, uh, and you know, keeping in mind that this is very much work in progress, so I'm just scratching the surface, but hopefully enough for a discussion. Um, so, informal interactions. Informal interactions, which is activities uh, such as cooking together, eating dinner, playing board games, playing sports with staff and prisoners engaging together without being organised, can at least theoretically help to increase the social glue between individuals and groups and can assist in breaking down barriers between us and them and help both groups to see the person behind the uniform, the individual and not just the number. 
However, the frequency and willingness to engage in such activities differs sharply between Australia and Norway, indicating a significant difference in pre-existing difference between staff and prisoners, but also perhaps a missed opportunity to reduce the distance in Australian prisons. But one can't force people to interact in such activities that kind of defeats the purpose. Um, in Australian prisons, though, it seems to be enough for most people if the formal interactions are working. They don't need to do this, you know, cosy welfare stuff, as they would see it. Um, but the, the, the ones that are around everyday routine, as long as those uh, interactions are respectful uh, and humane, people seem to be fairly content. And any close relationship is not necessarily wanted. So in all my interviews, I asked uh, prisoners and staff if they would engage in any informal activities, such as I just mentioned, with the other group. In Norway, the answer was yes, of course, from both groups. There was, it was just a given uh, component of day-to-day -day prison life. And it forms a, a, an important part of the operational model of prisons in, in Norway, uh, including uh, dynamic security and milieu therapy, environmental therapy. In Australia, the answer to the same question was no, never. And people were like, what? They couldn't believe I was even asking them, um, particularly in relation to custodial or uniform staff. And some quotes will illustrate this. Um, yes. So one uh, medium security prison uh, in Australia, they visited, it had originally been designed in the mid-1990s to allow for these informal interactions. They, they, uh, the authorities or the people who designed it thought they, that would be useful. Uh, but when interviewing staff in, in early 2014, the comments were, uh, no, 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 simply would not happen. Uh, when asked if this particular staff member would play soccer with the inmates, drawing a parallel to Norway, uh, he said he'd rather pull out his own fingernails. The other staff said the prison was designed for staff and inmates to eat together out in the common areas, out on the wings or in the units, but as far as I know, that's never happened. Another said, never really happened. I just wouldn't feel comfortable around that sort of thing. Uh, and lastly, uh, not sure why it's gone, but now it would pretty much be unthinkable. In a couple of high security prisons, staff mentioned that management prohibited such informal interactions. And one said, we can't even play pool with the prisoners. Management thinks it blurs the line. Prisoners felt equally strongly about such interactions, knowing that to be seen to spend time with staff in this way, so away from the very structured interactions, uh, would quickly give them the name screw lover uh, and place them in danger, ostracised by other prisoners and possibly punished for such transgressions. However, correctional authorities in Australia are aware that too large distances between the two groups can be harmful, and in the 1990s they introduced the casework model where one officer acts as a personal officer to two, three or four, yeah? So the same in England, I presume, yeah. The aim was to create closer, more respectful and more constructive relationships between the two groups, trying to change the very toxic culture that had existed in many prisons in the country up until this time. We have several uh, inquests and so on into to serious riots and abuses between the two groups in Australia. The casework officer was supposed to work closely with his or her prisoners throughout the sentence and assist them throughout programs education. Uh, you know the story, yeah? This was not necessarily a welcomed development. And as one custodial officer told me in a medium security prison, he said, um, the model was based on what those crazy Swedes were doing. No offence like. And I said, that's fine. The intentions were good, but perhaps, as they said, the people in town in the head office underestimated the resistance amongst both staff and prisoners. 
to such a move. Uh, one officer who, like many others, had worked in Pentridge, uh, which is now disbanded in prison in Melbourne, which was well known for his brutality, told me about the day when the new casework model was brought in. He said, uh, in Pentridge, they brought in casework, but we were not being paid any extra for doing that, so it was never going to happen. But even if we had been paid, it would not have happened. The reaction from the boss was to stand in the door to the outside area with the case files in his hand, throwing them out on the lawn, saying, we're not doing this shit. That was the end of casework in Pentridge. Another officer who had worked in another old, not closed down prison uh, summarised the development as such. When case management was introduced in the old B, there was a lot of resistance from older staff. They had joined the job to turn the key on prisoners not to be their best mate, and that's how they saw it. But they probably also didn't have the skills to do it. At least quite a few of them had problems reading and writing, and also did not have the people skills to do it, didn't want to do welfare type work. Since then, things have changed somewhat, and there is now more acceptance of the casework model, but due to the large distance between staff and prisoners, and the reluctance to change that, the effectiveness of the model has to be questioned. The following quotes illustrate that contradictory stance. As one staff member mentioned, what has broken the ice somewhat here is the casework, when you actually have to talk to them. Indeed, for some prison staff, this was a positive development, a, change, a chance to build report or report, sorry, which they saw as increasing safety for everyone. For others, it was less positive. Casework has created a lot of problems by staff not knowing where the line goes. It has decreased the respect for prison officers. I find it humiliating talking to prisoners like they are my equals. The line is much less clear than it was 20 years ago. This existing hegemonic cultural framework that dictates interaction across group lines becomes even more obvious in relation to new staff. New officers, many of them keen to engage in casework and to do people work instead of task work. Um, and they want to do their bit to rehabilitate prisoners and, and keep the community safe, but within six weeks to six months, they have been completely subsumed in this dominant prison culture, where the distance is very large and you don't have kind of general chats with, with prisoners. So it's not really changing. The prisons in Australia have become less antagonistic, however. Uh, there is less violent than it used to be within staff groups, uh, because both of them are fighting within these groups, and obviously across them. Uh, one prisoner uh, in high security who had been in and out of prisons for 30 years mentioned uh, the trade instructor. I even shook his hand at Christmas. In the old days, I would have punched myself for doing that. Um, this view was perhaps more common than one would have thought, and not just in high security. So even in low security in Australia, there's almost no informal interaction. And the culture of high security transferred almost unchanged into low security. So from this walled uh, prison to the open farms, the interactions, the way they speak about each other, is, is almost the same. Uh, one prisoner, uh, and again I asked him about the informal interaction, he said, no way, you get your head kicked in. I feel uncomfortable being in the car with a staff member when going out to work, so go out working on farms. I've seen people being punched in the mouth or shaking the hand of a senior staff member. I told the prisoner, this prisoner's about the model in Norway, which I'll tell you about shortly, and he was astonished, saying, you will get done for that here. And th a thing you just learn from day one, don't talk to staff. And many of these prisoners are also worried that if they're seen talking to staff, but also talking so the mainstream prisoners might talk to 
prisoners who have previously been uh, in protection, uh, not sex offenders that don't go to open prisons, but uh, people who, who turned crown witness, for example. Yeah? If they are seen speaking to these people in open and then get tipped back to high security for some reason, they will be in serious trouble because that rumour will spread very, very quickly. Uh, I asked about that in Norway and they were like, what are you talking about? It simply doesn't happen. Um, yep, skip that. So in Norway then, staff-prisoner interaction is at the centre of all prison work. Dynamic security is the model instead of the reliance on static security as it is in Australia. The way prisoners and staff interact is perhaps the starkest difference between the two countries. There's of course the usual formal interaction as in any prison, but it's the informal ones that can be much more important. Uh, these can consist and often do of staff and prisoners cooking food together, often dinner, eating dinner together, or eating lunch together out on the wings, uh, playing board games, playing football, playing tennis, uh, doing day excursions, and, and, uh, and now playing chess. Chess has become a huge thing in Norway. Uh, after Magnus Carlsen, the 22-year-old, won the world championship uh, last year. Yeah? Uh, so in, in the high-security prisons I visited now in August, uh, every, every wing had a chessboard. Uh, and people were playing it, like it wasn't just there for show, yeah? Uh, which says something, it messes about the capacity as well. And also in some of the exercise yards in, in one of the other high security, they have, uh, which is very new, um, they have these big rocks that kind of in, in the ground, they chop the top off and, and etch the chessboard in that so they can play that when they're out in their exercise yard, which they, which they do do. Um, but I think that also speaks a little bit about how... how how more porous the, the prison wars are in Norway when this outside culture fairly quickly is translated inside and part of the normalisation principle between uh, which, which doesn't happen in Australia. These activities, including going on excursions, going uh, they go walking in the mountains, uh, paddling canoe, they're very outdoorsy people in Norway. Um, that happens at all security levels, yeah, from high security all the way through to transition prisons, as they call them, which is nothing like transition prisons here. Uh, but it's also, I think, important to note, and, and as part of kind of exceptional Norwegian thing, these things happen in addition to the normal formal interactions. So Norway still have the 22-hour lockdown. Yeah, they still have serious issues with remand prisoners uh, not being let out at all, uh, very little phone contact, and so on. So they haven't they haven't supplanted them. They've just been added to. So I think if you take away the informal interactions, it's going to look much more like an Australian prison. Yeah. All good. So, maintaining informal interactions in Norway takes a lot of work, uh, which was obvious during these interviews. It doesn't happen automatically. And I think the point is that a total institution does not in any way encourage such interaction by itself. Instead, they have to be, de designed, they have to be designed in, both in the physical space, but also for, from staff and prisoners. All three will make up the, the culture in the prison. If you only do one, uh, it won't happen. So this leads me to my second point, which is much shorter, don't worry. Uh, this is staff training, yeah? So, staff training is one of those multifaceted variables. It says a lot about pre-existing attitudes towards prisons as institutions in any one country. Um, and how they affect both prisons and staff inside the, the prisons. 
as well as having an impact on day-to-day -day life in prisons, having a flow-on effect again on things like formal and informal interactions, attitudes to education and training of prisoners, uh, which is a huge difference where university education is encouraged at all levels in Nor Norwegian prisons and, and in Australian prisons is discouraged for prison staff. So again, it's it lots of variables, but I'll just do it very briefly um, because you might, might be unaware. So in Norway, um, the majority of staff I spoke to have some kind of university education behind them. Uh, most people do sociology degree, psychology, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, before starting uh, or applying to be a prison officer. Many of them have also worked in other areas, uh, nursing, education, uh, some has come from, from the military, uh, for example. Um, to train, the training to be a prison officer in Norway is a two-year program at the academy. Uh, last year, this program received university status, so it's actually now an accredited degree. And you can also do a third year on top of your two, which is more academically kind of uh, uh, focused. So the recruits come, they come in with a lot of experience. Um, and once they're in the academy, the, the subjects they study includes criminology, law, psychology, interpersonal skills, uh, as well as the more traditional topics of restraint, self-defense, and so on. The recruits spend the first six months at the academy. Uh, the next year they're out in prisons, but when they're there, they do two, two days a week uh, of uh, education. So you have a supervisor, but also a teacher out in the prisons. Uh, for the final six months, they're back at the academy. Uh, Norway is, is one of the world's richest countries uh, with a very low unemployment rate. Uh, last year, the academy took in 300 recruits, but 2,000 people applied. It's a very, it's a popular job. People want to do this. It's something they're very proud of doing. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. In Australia, this won't come as a surprise. Yeah, it's it's uh, eight to ten weeks. Um, now in Victoria, it's down to four because they need people to come through because it's a big short shortage of staff because the prison population is increasing so quickly due to politics. Different topic. Um, so not only aren't they well trained, many of them uh, haven't finished high schools, some of them have problems reading and writing, uh, they, they joined the service uh, because wanted to retire in the country but realised I was bored so I needed a job, those are quite good, those people, uh, need to pay the mortgage, uh, worked in a different company, you know, driving a truck, whatever, uh, they failed, I needed, you know, I needed a job. Uh, quite a few of them have been uh, in, the, in the military, um, spent some time outside of it and then wanted to go back into uniform, yeah? Um, so the, the key difference is, ev everyone I spoke to in Norway, when I said, why did you choose this job? The first response is, I want to work with people. One person said that in Australia. It was all the other reasons, yeah? They're like, oh, look around, here is my pension retirement fund. Yeah, that's, that's how they see it. Um, doesn't mean they're very bad at the job, yeah, but the motivation is different. Um, there's also, uh, prison staff in Norway feel valued. Uh, they unprompted, they're like, I love my job, I wouldn't change it for the world. Whereas in Australia, it's like, uh, they don't understand what we do, we're at the front line, we work with dangerous people, management don't care about us, the, 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 you know, the society that we live in, they don't understand what we're doing, and they feel undervalued, undersupported uh, in any way. That's that. So, let's move on to the view from the outside. So that was the inside, yeah, but I want to show you some photos, basically, uh, of different prisons, so we'll have something to put this discussion on too, and also give you some more information um, about those. Um, the point of doing this is that, that I think for the, the book that I did with John and other works we've done in the area um, presumes that prisons are, they look very different in the two countries, that they, the point is that they don't. 
uh, what is different that happens inside them, and they, they are different for, for a range of reasons. Um, so hopefully this will help illustrate. So this is Bergen Prison in Norway. Can you see that properly? It's kind of, yeah. Um, What's this is a high security prison. Uh, just the next picture shows you where it's at. This is the west coast of Norway. Uh, ridiculously beautiful. Um, obviously, when you're inside, you can't see the water. Yeah, uh, you can only see, you can see the mountains on the other side, but you can't see the water. So I just want to take you back to this one. You can see a bit more. No, no one does. No one. No. In Australia, it's only razor wire almost. There's very few walls. So in Queensland, there's razor wire as walls in, in, in Victoria. Uh, Norway, this, yeah, I'll show you in a second. So uh, th because it says on the, in the West Country, as it's called, yeah, they, they, this is the high security prison for all prisoners. So they have, when you come in here, this is for the young people, the youth prison, they're outside the walls. Uh, you come in here, uh, you know, hello, welcome area. <laughs> uh, these two things are uh, remand and reception. So remand prisoners are in the same prisons as sentenced prisoners in Norway, which they don't do in Australia or in Sweden, for example. Um, the, and the reception is, you know, where you arrive. You can spend a couple of days there or a couple of months, depending on, on your mental state. Um, the point is, I think, in, in remand in particular, uh, as we mentioned, they've been receiving a lot of criticism from the European uh, Commission for no, that sounds bad for Council of Europe. Yeah, the, the ones that do torture investigation, but they don't do torture. They tell people not CPT, to torture. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, again, uh, 20, 23 hour lockdown, very like a small caged exercise yard. You have no phone contact, no visits, uh, no news, no nothing. It's complete isolation. That could be for a few weeks, up to two years. And there is an enormous amount of critique for this. So it completely counteracts the exceptionalism thesis. Yeah. Because they're in the same prison, so it's not a different location. Um, reception, and then once you've been assessed, you move to this area here. There's a fence between them, yeah, uh, where you're more self-catering, uh, cook your own food and only units, uh, education. You have a library, you have exercise, sports yards, and so on and so forth. Um, the the unit here is it's it's a it's a treatment unit that people can um, self-refer to for drug and alcohol uh, addictions. Yeah, uh, we were supposed to interview there. <laughs> they, oh, yeah, this one first. This is the next level up, so you get more freedom, more responsibility. You're on your way out. Yeah, um, that, there's also one unit here for people with with heroin addictions or ADHD. Uh, ADHD on Subutex, which here is a different name, but it's speed. Yeah, something to train in prisons and obviously zoo. So, so when we came into the treatment unit, which is for drug and alcohol addicts, uh, they, they were in lockdown. Someone had got hold of a huge batch of, of Subutex and they had a big party all night. And you know, literally, everyone, the whole unit had to be on speed. Um, so, so we weren't allowed to interview them. That these are the things that happen in, in field work. Um, this area here and this area here is also uh, different units for men and women. So a lot of prisons in Norway have men and women in the same prisons, in different wings, yeah, you can't have access to each other. It's what they do socialise uh, around meal times and sport and leisure times and so on and so forth. Yeah? Condoms are free in Norwegian prisons, just in case you wanted, and I'm not joking. Um, outside this prison, uh, it's, an, it's an open prison, so that's where you transfer to next. Uh, from that prison you can go into Bergen, to the city, to, to uh, go to university or to school, to work during the day, and you come back in the evening, and then you do excursions and you walk in the mountains and stuff. This is high security. These are the other two high securities, they're quite different, and I think this is a, 
the prisons in Australia, in, in, at least in, in each state, are very, very similar. It's a similar culture in high security in all prisons across Queensland, for example. And the same in, in Victoria, unless between private and public. In Norway, every prison is different. Um, it's a distinct culture uh, for every high security prison and for every low security prison, uh, which I find really interesting. So there are obviously other things that play some roles apart from the kind of national context. Uh, the one to your top left there is Ila uh, Fenson prison. Um, this is the, the place where they put the worst of the worst. Why is that vibrating? Sorry, it's the table there's a whole, there's an uneven floor. Mm. Sorry, it's just me. It's if you notice, it's two, I think we're okay. Um, so, Ila prison, uh, they have the worst of the worst. This is where they sent uh, Breivik, yeah, after the, the bombings and the shootings in Norway, 2012. Uh, do you know who he is? Thank you, yes, it's Um He spent time there. The thing is that this one here, you can barely see it, this is the main building. That's where the, the majority of prisoners sit. They have 140. For them, that's a really big prison. Um, these prisons are also sent to something called favoring, which basically means detention. It's something that's added to your sentence. Your sentence can be maximum 21 years. It's a life sentence in Norway. You can't get higher than that. Or you can add favoring on top of that. So even if you get a five-year sentence plus providing, you, you get sent to Eva prison. Includes more observation, yeah? Staff will be around you all the time, they are anyway, um, but take note of everything that you do because you're, you're seen as to be a very, very dangerous person. Uh, so it's an extra level of, of surveillance. That surveillance is personal, yeah? Not, not static, they don't have more cameras or anything like that. It's just a lot of staff around all the time. So there's no... You can barely, this is the fence around it, yeah? Can, can you see it? Barely? Yeah. It's, it's a fence, like it's a, yeah? That's all there is. They're now building a second fence around it. Uh, they built a second one uh, in the front after Breivik was sentenced here. Presumably to keep journalists out, as opposed to keeping people in. Uh, it's never been seen in a need for that, you know? So they had to hide the security because of that. Um, the one you see inside the wall is called the South Wing. Uh, the only access underneath the wall. Yeah, there's no way through it otherwise. And that's where Breivik sits. This is always the, also the management unit, and for the people who simply can't cope in, in mainstream, they they end up there. Uh, but not that many people in at the, at the moment, or a few at any any stage. Uh, the prison is located uh, northwest of Oslo, but next to it, it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a city or a town in the country with lots of houses around it. Uh, a lot of prison staff live in those houses, it's convenient, just walk to work. So, you know, these are the worst of the worst prisoners, that's the way they talk about themselves as well. Um, once you've spent enough time in, in the main building, you're then allowed out on day excursions to go panning canoes, as, you know, so you can't uh, There's also here, which you can't see, big greenhouses where they grow flowers and they sell to the public twice a year. So a lot of them go out all day and work out all day and then go back inside the fence, yeah? That's high security in Norway. Very few escapes, very few incidents, but it does happen when it happens, it's usually serious, yeah? This other one is from Halden Prison, which I've probably heard about. That's the one everyone talks about in Norway. Uh, it was in Times Magazine and the world's most humane prison, yeah? It's a nice prison, yeah, as far as prisons go. But, and this is the big thing, yeah? So this picture here with all the trees uh, is from the backside for two of the kind of main units. There are exercise yards in that area uh, with trees in them and with rocks and things, and then you have this massive, massive grey wall that you can't see over. 
there are also lots of other wooded areas which prisoners aren't allowed into at all. Yeah? Uh, they would like to, but they're not allowed to. So it's very controlled, controlled very restrictive. Uh, but again, a lot of staff, a lot of well-trained staff, where the aim is to release the person who can be your neighbour. That's the, that's the aim of that whole prison, as opposed to contain until we have to release you. But you also have these units here, which also exercise yards in the same prison, where you're in a smaller unit, um, and you just walk around for a little triangle, which in, in winter looks less than exciting. Woodford, this is Queensland, Australia. Uh, about a thousand prisoners. Um, disappointed quickly, though, quickly. These, these units here and these units here are secure. So you have 50, it's supposed to be 24, now they're 50 uh, in each upstairs, downstairs, a classical panopticon design, yeah? Uh, staff sits behind the glass wall, they don't go out and wings unless they have to. Prisoners spend, um, they're locked out of the cells during the day for human rights reasons, yeah? And they can spend time out in this cage area that's probably the size of this room, 50 people, all day, everyone in one room, yeah? You have a little bit of comfort there. And I asked them, like, how long do they spend here before they can progress to the next level? And some of them, it depends, it could be two weeks, could be ten years. Yeah. Some of them do progress to this area here, which is called residential. Uh, a lot of high security in Queensland have this because they abolished all medium security. There is nothing in between. Residential, you can cook your own food, you can walk around a bit more. So there's some kind of progression. Most of these people would never go to open prison. They are simply aren't alive. They're too, too dangerous. So instead we're just going to release them. It makes complete sense if you're a politician in Queensland. Um, Ustro, uh, Norway, this is actually a prison belonging to Bergen prison, the one you saw before. Uh, it's an island, I just have to show this picture because it looks ridiculously beautiful. We were here doing interviews and you take the boat out to the island. Just a, a little bit of close-up, so this is what it looks like. Um, <laughs> prisoners and staff in all um, uh, low security prisons, uh, uh, they don't wear uniforms. Yeah, so when it comes to low security, everyone wears their own clothes. Prisoners don't wear uniform at any level. They're all their own clothes, even high security. Not here. No. Which is part of the re-socialisation, yeah? We don't, without, they don't want the device. They're going to work to try to, to, to counteract the kind of negative impacts of, of um, institutionalisation. Prisoners on this island, uh, they can leave, go into Bergen during the day to study or work, take the boat, take the train to the city and then come back, yeah? Uh, some <coughs> prisoners who have spent time in high security and then come here, they really appreciate this. Yeah, people who go straight into low security, they hate it. For them, it's as punitive as high security would be because of deprivation of liberty. Yeah, same in Australia. So it looks nice, but um, so this is obviously exceptional uh, Norway. This is Palin Creek. This is also an open prison, a low custody prison uh, in Queensland. So they have high security, they have a few of these left, not many. This is a farm um, about two hours north uh, west of, or sorry, southwest of Brisbane. Uh, unbelievably beautiful. Uh, and the mountains are called a scenic rim um, because of what it looks like. And, and that's it, there's no fence, it's a little one. Um, some of the prisons, the open prisons, they have fenced in the vegetable garden. Uh, to keep the kangaroos out, yeah, as opposed to keep people in. 
so they can look exactly the same. This is not so different from the Norwegian prisons, yeah? Um, the difference is the culture inside here, which I said before, translates straight from high security and there's big divisions. I thought they were going to have a lot more close cooperation than they do, but they don't. In Norway, they work actively to, to change that. So I'll leave that up and I'll just conclude. So prisoners themselves, and indeed a lot of staff, are very clear about what makes prisons better or worse. Uh, it's people and the way they interact. So as mentioned by an Australian prison, high security, people matter, the physical environment is less important. Another, this time in low security, said, doing jail in itself is easy, it's the other people dragging you down. People make the prison, and the physical environment doesn't really matter. Um, yep. So the point is that under the, the hegemonic influence of the total institution, such sentiments may not always play out in practice. Uh, this is about giving respect, sorry. So in low security, um, where the perimeter might consist of a low fence or no fence at all, static security is minimal. But the, what they call dynamic security has been maximised. So in low security, you have eight musters per day when you count people. Uh, in, in, in Norwegians, I think it's morning and evening, if, if anything. Um, so it's the quality of human interactions that matters, not the quantity. So what became very obvious during this research, uh, a, a very stark, very punitive, uh, high-security environment can be made to feel better, more humane, if characterised by such interactions. In the same way in which an open prison can feel cold and punitive due to a lack of such interactions. Hence, a large distance is not automatically negative. It depends on the type and form of interaction that takes place across the divide. But prison staff in both Australia and Norway were very clear what such interactions looked like. It was characterised by respect, clear boundaries, consistency, trust and certainty. And I'll finish. Excellent. Thank you, Anna. Thank you.